Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So hey everybody, welcome to episode 324 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitchell and I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by High Man Lopez Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And we're also joined by Mark Rubin in San Jose, California. Hello. Alrighty. But I don't have any fact check from last week and we don't have any Ask MTJC, right? I didn't see any Ask MTJC and fact check. Yeah. We just we just got everything 100% nailed it all. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Send your hugs to the folks at Slack and GitHub because they had kind of a rough couple of weeks between between the two of them. Why is that? I have no idea. I'm sure there's postmortem stuff, but just like internet stuff is happening. I'm sure it's a whole bunch of folks, you know, streaming Super Bowls and online schooling and work and all that other stuff where, where we're straining at the edges of uh, hmm. network connectivity. And, and it's been probably the better part of a week that we've had various cold fronts around the United States and tons of snow in, in places like the East Coast. And even our area is slated to get some snow. So it's probably more kids and others, you know, staying home and stuff. So they're having COVID lockdown snow days. <laughs> <laughs> you you would think that there should not be a single thing as a snow day anymore, but uh, apparently that's still a thing. Yeah, but you were thinking they're thinking it was lots of like Super Bowl screaming and stuff this week. Oh, I guess. CBS all uh, CBS all access went down for a few minutes during oh. the Super Bowl as everybody wow. tried to, to view it, which is uh, of great irony given that they spent so much money promoting Paramount Plus, which is just a mm. rebrand. Branded CBS All Access right. with um, Paramount stuff added to Viacom CBS's backlog. The CBS uh, Plus went down because, or All Access went down because of the Super Bowl or because of the ads? Uh, well, the I, I, I believe since the Super Bowl was on CBS in the United States that people wanted to, to stream it through, you know, Apple TVs oh. and Roku's and, and Chromecasts and stuff rather than, than doing it through, you know, like your normal cable provider or, or over the air. And, uh, you know, it's it's rough. It's rough when your, your network services are not ready for millions upon millions of yeah. the, the stampeding rumbling herd coming to you right. your i just i just remember that old cisco commercial where i think i probably told you guys this story and um, where a guy's selling ice cream out of an ice cream truck and he's in the middle of a like a you know italian piazza piazza where there's like you know like lots of room around him and he looks out looks up and as he's serving the kid the ice cream and there's like a like a, like a thundering mass of kids running towards his his little ice cream truck <laughs> wanting ice cream that's that's the, the vision i have of that kind of you know not ready for the demand kind of thing distributed computing is 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 hard folks if you're in school study that sort of thing because guess what uh every year we're like oh no there was troubles buying the iphones like of course there were millions of people trying both legitimate and bots trying to all acquire these devices and yeah distributed computing is hard doesn't seem to be happening as much now that you mentioned that because the last time we bought 
iPhones? Was there a big thundering stampede towards them? Like, nobody could line up at the Apple Store for one thing, right? Yeah, I mean the the, the phasing of the availability of devices, I think, kind of helped. So we're like two or three weeks apart, right, between the the Pros and the twelve, the normal twelves, and then oh right, like, the yeah, Max yeah. and Mini came out as sort of a later run. So, well, do you think they do the staggering because of the demand, or they do the staggering because of uh, because it takes that much longer to get the parts? I figured it was manufacturing, you know, um, hiccups related to, to COVID that happened, you know, early in the year, but it had the nice side effect of splitting up the amount of rumbling herd that comes begging for iPhones, you know. But so it feels like, like the rumbling herd has kind of not not rumbled as much since since we started buying phones online, don't you think? In the early days, you had to, it, it was, they were so hard to get, you had to call around to all the different stores and yeah. check out these websites that would tell you which store had it in stock and they never did and and when when they did you had to rush down there and 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 get it or you had to camp out you know the night before they're supposed to be released and all that but ever since they've been available to order online it feels to me like just the 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 internet is perfectly capable of handling that because they because they're ready for it and just everyone just sort of orders it and they stagger the delivery times so so the you know the lining up and the and the the big like hype about have to get there first to get the phone first and is gone don't you think yeah yeah, yeah I, sure. I could see that as things have matured and as there's more uh, available capacity yeah. and just easier options and I, I would be very curious how much um, engineering goes into like the Apple store app where you know they've, they've really highly encouraged people like oh go you know reselect your options and then yeah. when we flip the switch to let you in all you have to do is just go check out I'm like hmm well you've downloaded all the assets or they're pre-baked into some version of the app or something and so they reduce the network traffic and other contingents so now you're really really only worrying about can we synchronously you know decrement the amount of uh, you know stock that we have and charge your your credit card and etc where I'd, I'd love to know one day what what sort of thought and processing has gone um, or processes have you know they learned from over the years since it's been um, you know more than a decade worth of them having to deal with it mm-hmm. yep well I mean the best part now too is when you order there's no guessing about when you're going to get it like like Mark was saying in, in the early days you had to run down and hope you got there in time the, that they had stock. Now you know you're getting it in two weeks, right? You were getting it in three weeks or whatever. And, it, yeah. Really sure. yeah. and it seems and, and to me, they've done this last couple of things I've ordered. They are being very, cons- maybe this is due to the, the pandemic, but they've, they're have they very conservative on the date they quote you. And the last two times, the thing has arrived like a week before the date they originally quoted. That happened with the iPhone 12 and this M1 I just got. They, do, they quoted a certain date on the website and then I checked back and then all of a sudden, oh, it's shipped and it was it, it arrived literally a week before they said it was going to arrive oh that's good that's nice good news yeah yep. some good news for you folks yeah all righty so we'll just jump in with some uh some follow-up items and we've got quite a few since we've been away for a couple of weeks but uh and, and so if you were living under a rock uh, maybe you have maybe you haven't but uh, apparently there was some sort of exploit in ios 14 um and i don't know about 13 but uh there was a announcement last week to that we should all be upgrading to or i guess it's end of january i'll should be upgrading to uh, ios 14.4 um i don't know if you guys have done that or you were heard of this at all or anything about it well i did the update um hadn't really heard too many details about the vulnerabilities actually so i guess i have been under a rock <laughs> right. but um were they was this the one that oh i think i did we, we might have talked about this before this is the one where someone found a way to uh well i don't remember tell, tell us about was it, it like airdrop or something <laughs> like like airdrop or or um, uh, ad hoc Wi-Fi networks or something where they could wirelessly just uh, take control of the device. And we said it was like like a movie where you just sort of look at the device and it's it's hacked sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. A remote attacker might be able to cause arbitrary code execution. Apple is aware, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's funny. I just, just finished watching Homeland. I don't know if you guys have watched Homeland, you know, the, the show about uh, the girl that's in the CIA. Um, anyway, just watched the final season, uh, season eight. And like right up until the last show, she, you know, she's about to turn herself into the to the 
FBI or whatever, and she was walking along the street, and she takes her phone, and she takes her SIM card out of her phone and snaps it in half. Are we still snapping SIM cards in half in fiction, um, as if that's a way of tracking where you are? Um, anyway, so and then she throws the phone into the garbage. But I just thought it was funny that, that people still think SIM cards somehow, or, or at least uh, writers of science fiction or fiction think SIM cards are, have lots of personal information on them or something. You guys have no comment. I mean, it makes it easier, right? You can correlate those things, whereas, okay, take, take the SIM card out and destroy it so it's harder to see like oh like oh look it was going on you know the 1230 train to go to this person's house yeah but right? like, surely the imei numbers where where they track things right i think they also just well it, it, we're also not considering whether that was um like a sim that got purchased specifically for the committing of crimes sort of thing <laughs> like a, like a burner phone was like well well yeah let me buy a burner iphone or, or android whatever it was they were using yeah where do you buy burner sim. sims i never did figure that out yeah you I mean, I think buy buy Sims at a burner Sim store. <laughs> um, I mean, it, is it so crazy though? Because the the if the if the network if the call is being tracked just by if it's a completely anonymized phone, let's say an anonymized SIM code SIM card, then the phone then the calls that you make are being tracked by the number some number that's on the SIM card, not in the physical phone, because that's that's how the network identifies you. And and then if they so they have this record of calls somewhere that were made and right. and if they find that sim card on your person and and that has the id that was used to make those calls then they've tracked those call they've they've correlated those calls to you as a person yeah right? i don't know I, I think i think the infrastructure is way more sophisticated than what sim card you have in your phone you know because i mean like i said the, the imei numbers how they actually track the physical device and you know and the, ra- and the radio has a mac address and all that kind of stuff and and then you're using some sort of payment vehicle to buy time on this this phone i don't know just Spycraft just, you know, eludes me. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, speaking of which, there's a show called Spycraft on Netflix. Uh, yeah. So, uh, just to follow up here, um, yeah, we're on the M1, um, computers. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a new startup modes. And, um, my friend, uh, Zvon has another article here, um, on his at, at your server website, uh, talking about the different kind of modes to start up. Like I've been, you know, you know, working on Macs for forever. It seems like, and you know, the, I know all the key commands, you know, to get them to boot into recovery mode or to target mode or what have you. And the M1 has changed all that in terms of how things are how things are loaded. And I think the key is you hold down the power key in some ways, and you get this new startup manager thing that comes up. So, Mark, now that you have a uh, a uh, M1, you may want to just have a gl- glance at this article. So. You yeah. Yeah. know how to get in and out. This is good to know. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I do wonder where this where he got this information from because mm-hmm. there was no manual that came with it that said there were all these new things. And and I haven't I, well, I haven't been looking for this information, but I haven't seen this information anywhere before. So this is actually pretty, really good to know. Well, like me, he's a Mac IT guy, and, mm-hmm. and uh, for years he's taught the, uh, the in Canada anyway. He's taught the course on you know Mac uh, Mac server admin that, that the Apple certified courses. One of the instructors, so he probably put this together himself these look like screenshots that, that have been made like with a camera or something right yeah yeah so it's good i mean yeah. I, you know like like i said the the different ways to get in and out it's it's pretty much all the same routine uh, to get into the startup manager it's called or whatever and uh had different ones so if you want to re- reinstall your big sir or open up safari browse around and all the sort of you know run disk utility you know set up your your password for your firmware password and that kind of stuff all that can be done through this through this uh, interface which normally is done by either holding the on the old Macs, you would hold on the option key to choose a startup drive, or you would hold down Command R to, to go into recovery mode, Command T to go into into uh, target mode, Command C would run would boot from a, a CD drive or a DVD. I remember when we used to be able to boot from CDs and DVDs. But yeah, I remember when you used to be able to boot from floppies. <laughs> yeah, I remember that too. In fact, I have a computer that runs off floppies. As a matter of yeah. fact, now you mention it. Yep. Anyway, but uh, right. no, no more PRAM. That's I don't know if yeah. I'm happy or sad about that. I guess I'm probably happy about that because it always kind of sucked that. You have to zap the PRAM every once in a while. Well, the SMC still is. The, the, lately, the SMC has been more troubling than the PRAM. Well, there's no SMC either, according to this um, article. Very last line of this article. Oh, no longer seem to be able to wrap. No longer seems right. to be available. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's like, like the, I think the closer we've talked about, you know, how the Mac OS is moving towards iOS in terms of um, its, you know, features and stuff. Like that. I think people are probably thinking more like desktop kind of stuff, but it seems like more under the hood, uh, they're moving more towards, uh, they're, they're converging in terms of how the hardware is set up, right? Because they don't really have these modes on, on iPads and iOS as well either. They have, they have some, but not, not as sophisticated as, as this. 
Alrighty. Um, but now that we we're on the subject, I just wanted to get Mark. You you received your M1 a I couple did. of days ago. I did. You want to give us the rundown on what your experience is so far? Yeah. So I got the. I think I talked about this earlier about what my plan was, but I got the the M1 Mini. Uh, and the reason I chose that one, well, my old laptop, which I've talked about many times, was a 2013 model that served me well, but was getting to the point where I was kind of eyeing it, wondering if I was going to get up one day and in the morning and have it you know, not, not wake up, you know, so, so I figured it was time to get something new. Uh, but yeah, I, I wasn't thrilled about the laptop offerings with the M1 and, you know, we know that there's going to be better ones next year. So I figured I'd get a mini, uh, which will tide me over until a year or whenever, when the new Mac uh, MacBooks come out. So, so I did that. I got the mini, I got the 16 gig, uh, version with a terabyte and it took, like I said earlier, they, they quoted about a month delivery time, but it actually showed up in, uh, just under three weeks, which was which was a real nice surprise that was great really easy to set up um it actually has more ports it seems like than than uh, the the 15 inch macbook pro that i use uh, that may not actually be true but there's but there's a, there's usb a ports which is which is actually kind of nice because i can hook up my monitor through the usb a port um and uh cuz i have a, a you know display what is it called the display connector uh, that i convert to usb a that i that i use for that uh, so yeah, so it took you know I just I, I did the restore from from uh, Time Machine and it took all night, but next morning it was good to go, running Big Sur, uh, and it you know it's it's pretty great. I mean it's it's I haven't had any issues yet. Uh, I haven't. Uh, had well, I did it. You know, it did have to do when the first time I ran it. I had to do some Rosetta. I had to I had to install Rosetta and things like that. I guess it wasn't installed by default, but it just did it automatically the first time I tried to run uh, an app that uh, that needed it. Um, and it's compared to my 2013, it's it's pretty snappy. It's pretty fast. Uh, so I'm pretty happy about that. Um, I haven't run into really any issues yet at all. So, so are you finding that the when you open Safari, for instance, it's like a single bounce and then it's open or? Uh, I haven't really noticed, uh, but let, <laughs> let me try. I mean, I haven't certainly haven't noticed it as slow. Yeah, no, I, I find yeah, that, that single bounce uh, and it's open. Yep. Yeah, same yep. thing with Xcode and things like that too. Um, I, I I was going to ask too. So so there was no was there any um, facility for you to do like a disk to disk transfer? Like I guess I guess lack of ports, right? Was your like you couldn't put your old Mac into target mode and then hook it up like a and just do a migration off of it, right? Oh, uh, I didn't even try that because I I actually did some research on that and and looked up what is the preferred mode and right. the prefer they actually say it it is preferred to restore from a time machine backup rather than from a uh, disk using or from the migration a network drive we want to from a di- well, I, I, I connected a physical time machine disk oh, okay okay yeah 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 yep. yeah rather than trying to go through it ne- it would have been horrendously slow through a network i mean it already was slow but would have been even ridiculously slow through a network uh so but yeah i mean i could have used migration assistant but i chose not to so in a, it would work pretty well i do have all my old 32-bit applications still in my applications folder and obviously they don't run but uh oh, wow, but yeah. those you know those didn't get well i mean that's kind of my fault they've just been sitting there for a while now uh and i have to just delete those manually were they running under catalina anyway like they weren't right no i didn't have catalina on that machine just oh. because i had some 32-bit applications that was exactly why right yeah hmm. yeah yep. i'm surprised that it actually installed them thinking you know i kind of thought it was going to just remove them too but but you know i could see people being pretty pissed off if it just removed them without telling you <laughs> yeah i could you could see people getting pretty unhappy well, about that so so they probably yeah, chose yeah. not to do that yeah yeah well, i, did, about I did have some uh kind of funny things that i had to do for some some development work that i was doing but you know this is all like command line unix level type stuff mm-hmm. um some things like for example uh go language golang right. uh if you install that from home first of all well, first of all, you can't install Homebrew directly. I thought Homebrew just came out 3.0. Well, it, I had to go and uh, open. Uh, well, I had to. I happened to op- open an, uh, an old shell with uh, with some kind of special command that they gave me on the Homebrew website, and then I could install. And I'd have right. to look up exactly what that was. But it was. Well, just do you remember that that, that post that Jaime talked about on the last show where where you could have two terminals? You make a copy and set one to use Rosetta and the other one to use. Yeah, that's what it was. Right. 
Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what it was. Yeah. But once I did that, then Golang, the existing version on Homebrew doesn't run on the M1. Uh, so there is a beta version, but you have to go and install that directly from, you can pull down a DMG from, from their website and install that. Uh, so there's just a couple of little things like that, uh, that, you know, those aren't, those aren't things that your average user is going to be doing. So I can't really fault Apple for that. It's, um, you know, I'm installing third party software. So it's, 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 uh, Google's fault that Golang doesn't work on the M1. <laughs> not Apple's fault. Right, right. Well, since we're on the subject of, of M1s and my experience too is that, uh, and we were just going to talk about it before the show, and, and that's the, uh, the DTK has been, we've been getting notices from Apple saying they're time, time to send them back. They haven't given us the instructions on what to do yet. Um, so I dug my box out, but, uh, and we were talking, I think the original offer was $200 US, which is nothing to shake. You know, get quite a few Tim Horton coffees with that. Um, you know, not that you could use it for that, but, uh, and, and there was a restriction about when you could use it, but I think there was a lot of complaints from people on socials and online and stuff like that. And Apple has increased the credit to $500, which I, if I'm not mistaken, was what we paid for it in the first place. Um, and then we get to use that as a credit towards the purchase of a, a new, a new M1. Yeah. I was actually some, about to ask you that. M so something. was yeah. it $500 that you paid? I think I'm pretty thing? sure it was because, uh, it might've, it might've been 550 or something, but it ended up being 700 and something dollars Canadian for me. Right. Mm-hmm. Plus GST, blah blah blah. But you know, so that's you know, that's that's half. Like you said, halfway to buying an, uh, a new M1, whichever way you go, right? Mm-hmm. So, and to be honest with you, like, and I made this point on our Slack in, in that, and I've said this to a few people who have listened that you know, when when I went ahead and decided to get the DTK, I knew that I was just paying Apple to let me use the machine and work on my apps, you know, to you know to make them compatible with the M1s or whatever, or the silicon, I should say. Um, and I wasn't really expecting to get anything back for that, you know. And and I and I heard that you know James Thompson talked about on Twitter about how when he was on the uh, the was it four eighty six when they originally did the uh, the switch over to Intel, there was a beta program for people, and and they did the same thing, and they got like you know they didn't get like the money back, they got something, but they didn't get a full refund kind of thing. And kind I kind of went into it knowing that. And my other point is that if you're a company that is making money on Mac software or you know ios software and you're you're profitable right like maybe you're in that million dollar club that, that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago i'm sure 500 dollars to spend on an on a dtk is not a lot of money right so um i kind of you know I'm, sure. I'm glad apple decided to to go ahead and change the policy which is great for me you know but but i was happy with with the 200 they were going to give me right i mean i think you're looking at it in a very healthy way i do think well there's there's two different things going on here right so i very quickly want to address that i think given the size of Apple, it absolutely would have made sense to just, you know, make the developers happy because um, it costs you very little given your size to uh, to do so. That's a little bit separate than strictly from like a business transaction standpoint. What did they owe you? And it's like, well, they kind of owed you nothing. I think um, you paid, let's say, $500 participate in this program and you have to return the device afterwards. So it's kind of like, hey, I have paid $500 for hypothetically my business to be ready right. for yep. uh, software uh, launch on the first day. So there's there's a symbiotic thing, right? Where it's very clearly in Apple's benefit to have people update their software and have it ready day one. So that's kind of where I'm like, you know, Apple just, you should have just done people a solid instead of penny pinching on and going back and looking really bad and, and, uh, and cheap um, uh, from it. But from a, uh, you know, for you as, a, as an individual, not you specifically, but for people listening as individual developers, it's like, did you kind of just want to, you know, tinker around with it and you weren't really a serious business and now you're like oh my gosh i thought it was gonna basically play with this toy for free and now i'm only gonna get 300 of it back subsequently 500 so you're, you're made whole i'm like i think that's kind of where some more of the anger is coming from that people didn't realize what they were buying into and i think yeah but if you read the terms of the serious developers uh, there was really no promise good. made by apple to say you're going to get back your full or anything really it was just sort of you get to use it for a while and then you're gonna have to send it back that was what the, the agreement was. Oh yeah, yeah, to- totally, totally. Which I think you know, if you've got a, a a business that that does like you know some serious money from from your apps, it's like, dude, yeah, absolutely. I would easily spend ten times more to make.
make sure that my my business is is uh, you know ready for continuity, right? Like you'll, you'll spend more than that on on just insurance for your business, right? Um, and and that's where I think there's probably a little bit of a disconnect where some folks either felt entitled for reasons that didn't make a whole lot of sense, given that you weren't strictly speaking uh, entitled in a very literal sense to anything other than you give us five hundred, we give you a device for a limited amount of time, we take the device back. Um, and yeah, and I, mean, I also you signed a contract, that. right? I mean, it's yeah. it was a, yep. yeah, yeah. You, you know, you lease a car and you pay you pay the the lease every month, and then you give the car back at the end. You don't expect to get and you don't own the back, car, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. But I think there were just uh, probably too many folks who thought, oh yeah, well that's what they said, but this is you know this is what they did back in like the nineties or early two thousands. Like, well, I mean, probably completely different people managing the program now. Are you sure they will have the same sort of thoughts? And and I also do highly suspect there are a number of folks who just wanted to, to play with the shiny and didn't really need the DTK, right? Mm-hmm. So I calculated out this math and I was like, all right, what would it have really cost Apple? Like, I'm gonna, I have no numbers, I know nothing here. But I'm like, let's say they had ten thousand of these devices go up, and that that seems like a lot. Um, ten thousand of these devices, so it effectively costs Apple like three hundred, sorry, three million extra dollars for the giving you notwithstanding all three hundred R and D on the, the device too, right? Sorry, they also had to do R and D on the device. They also had to design it, engineer it, you know, get it manufactured. I'm sure it cost them something to do this, right? Oh, sure, sure. But that's like, you know, capital investment for like, you know, trying to make sure that there's continuity of their their uh, third party developer ecosystem. I'm, I'm talking about like, you know, why why did Apple, somebody somebody somewhere at Apple very clearly made the decision, whether they made it explicitly or carelessly, or they just thought like, hey, you know, I've got a really good idea to get myself a bonus. Somebody said, okay, so we charged them 500 <laughs> If we give them $200, but a very limited time, it's like they have to use it by May. And guess what? There are absolutely no new M1 devices coming out by May, let me tell you. It's like somebody said, aha, so not only will we have reclaimed in most cases, you know, at least, you know, $300 uh, that we've gotten to, 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 to get away with the, the appearance of the $200 isn't real. Cause it's like one of those rebates that nobody ever expects you to actually, you know, turn in and, and, and follow all the proper procedures. Like, you know, that $200, I'm like, dude, okay, just accept the fact if it was $200, you were willing to give back as credit. What does it cost you extra? I was like, well, for $300, extra across 10,000 devices, that'd be $3 million or like roughly the amount of money that Apple probably spends on literal apples at like Apple's campus, right? <laughs> like it's yearly budget for apples. The the fruit is probably $3 million or less. So it's like this, this is the smallest of rounding errors. And I, I have to believe that somebody was either being very, very foolish or was incentivized to like, hey, Lopez, find a way to make a little bit more money for this department. It's like, hey, I've got this idea <laughs> and yeah. then didn't float it past the right people who would have probably stepped in and say, Hey, don't, 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 don't be, you know, don't be chintzy on this. Don't be Scrooge McDuck. Like just, just make them whole. Well, it, could have, the it could also been that charging, charging something for this, this privilege, you know, as I'm calling it, charging something for this privilege also vetted out the people who don't really need to do this. Right. I mean, and you know, if they had made it a dollar, like they did for the Apple TV, the, the they would have sold out in a second. Right. The fact that you had to have this $500 bar, Right, meant that you, you know you had to be willing to part with five hundred dollars to use this device for whatever six months or eight months or whatever it's been. Right, you know. Yeah, yeah. There, the, that pricing floor definitely helps weed out some of the some of the folks who weren't you know sort of serious about you know because Apple's not doing it out of charity. It's not like hey, you get to play with this toy. It's intended to be please yeah. make your software better. It's good for you, so you can continue to sell software and better for Apple, so that it has this wide variety of software that's available for the M1. It's actually pretty standard practice to have a, a development kit that you charge for you know if you have a hardware product for sure you know if you if you are selling a chip let's say and you want users to develop a system around that chip well you sell a hardware kit that they can plug the chip into and use to, to build their thing around that's really standard practice what isn't standard as far as I know is is having to give it back at the end that's the unusual thing yeah well I mean that said I mean I, I don't think anybody's mentioned this but in I think in the letter they sent us it 
tells us that the device will no longer update anymore. Like, like yeah. whatever beta of software we have on it now is where it's going to stop. Like, the software updates won't run on it, which is which is crafty too, right? But I think that, you know, necessary in this case, right? Yeah. What would they have done if you just didn't return it? What will they do? I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know Probably what the deal nothing, is there. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's Again, another reason why they charge 500 bucks. I'm sure they're going to lose a number of these to the people who want to keep them and put them on eBay in 10 years, right? Or whatever, right? Yeah. I don't, I don't think the, I don't in think the vast majority worried about the cost that. Of, the, yeah. of the hardware that they're losing though. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, speaking of weird new hardware too. So, um, I, I have an iPhone 12 pro as you guys know. And, um, so I was, uh, getting my Mac fixed at, at one of the stores and, and I asked, inquired about a MagSafe adapter. Anyway, so I ended up getting one for my iPhone 12 pro and I was concerned about, um, I use a third party case on the back of it. And so there's like, you know, it's like, I don't know, half a millimeter of distance between the back of the phone and, and this. And, and surprisingly the, the MagSafe does work through the other plastic. Um, I think that if you look at the cases that they have that Apple sells, they have like a little, I'm, I'm assuming it's some sort of magnetic ring that, that fits on the case. And so that it makes a better thing like naked, um, naked and like to take a naked phone and connect it to the MagSafe, it just, it, glues right on, right? The bit's slippery and it does tend to come off on this this third-party case, but I think it's because I'm you know, the magnet is held a first, uh, distance away from the actual phone. But it's cool when you plug it in, it, it does the sort of like little circle thing that the watch does when you plug the watch into the charger. You get that little graphic with the lightning bolt on it and, and the green ring. Um, but yeah, and it's pretty quick. It, it, it definitely charges much faster than a, than a key charger, so yeah. money, money well spent. You do have to plug yeah. it into a proper USB-C uh, port with 20 watts of power, I believe, right? They can run it off a USB Mac or you can run it off the iPad charger. I have one too, and I use it without a case at all. Uh, and it's it's on there pretty tightly. In yeah. fact, I worry a little bit that it's a little too tight, that it's going to scratch it or something trying to pull it off. Oh, really? Yeah. But it, but it hasn't seemed to have had any issues. Well, it's interesting too with those wallet sort of card holders that you can get for the back of the phones. And yep. I, w- I would worry that those fall off, but apparently the, mag- the magnets are really strong, like you said, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. All right. Enough about that. So I guess we'll speak in a hardware back to Jaime. Yeah, I wanted to talk briefly about the, uh, I'll just read the, the title here from this Ars Technica article that we'll have uh, linked in the show notes for those of you driving at home. So, sorry, small phone lovers, the iPhone 12 mini was Apple's 2020 sales flop, which is juicy as far as, as uh, headlines go. But when I look at the chart, and again, this is an audio only medium, so I recommend you pull over or something and, and check the show notes. So, I think it is true in some respects that the, the launch of the 12 mini in the same year that the SE, which is also a, a smaller and, and cheaper phone, maybe wasn't the best mix, right? Um, but combined in terms of small phone usage, I'm like, well, you know, if we say this is 5%, according to this counterpoint research, and visually, I think the SE is a little bit more than five, we're talking 11, 12% of their sales would have been small phone devices like the iPhone SE, and the iPhone 12 mini. I'm like, well, I think I personally wouldn't have, have launched the mini and the SE in the same year, but the smart is you know, small phones go I'm like 12 ish percent is probably not too bad. I mean, I, right. I yeah. certainly yeah. wouldn't want to remove that from the list of iPhones that I was selling, you know, um, trying to find uh, a phone that fits everybody. I, I do think it is also true that if you are a small phone lover, you are very clearly in the minority, right? Like the, the facts <laughs> and data speak for themselves in that uh, two times, you know, into the well and you, you weren't able to overcome any one of the uh, 12, 12 pro or 12 pro max the most expensive phone in terms of sales so you can gripe about it all you want and i'm not saying you're wrong like whatever fits your needs fits your needs i prefer pepsi and most people prefer coke um <laughs> you know i'm not gonna say you're wrong but just like just realize that like when you're like oh they should make us another you know small phone it's like well i mean you, you gotta gotta convince people to vote with their wallets then because mm. clearly people are, are not agreeing with you so are we talking like 699 for uh iphone 12 mini is that right us dollars i want to say that is pretty close to correct so it's it's pricier than the iphone se can you buy the se let me see what the se is costing caveats with you know covid and pandemic and economic uncertainty and etc but uh, i don't think we've ever seen um, other than pent-up demand i don't think we've ever seen the se or other small devices just like blow things out of the water and given that the 12 pro 
Max, the like very, very expensive device easily outmatches both the SE and the 12 mini combined. It's like, well, I mean, can you really fault Apple for making larger and more expensive devices if people keep buying them? Well, I mean, there's a whole face ID argument too, right? But the, um, the, and the home button thing, but the, the SE, which looks very much like a six, right? I guess in terms of its style, uh, it's uh, 399. So that's like $200 less than, than the, the mini, right? So I think that the mini kind of caters, it's kind of like when we, the year we had all those too many iPads, remember that? And you never knew which, which iPad was the right one to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you want to have a, an inexpensive iPhone, then the, the SE makes a lot of sense, right? Um, you know, cause then, then it's, you're, you're not, you're, you're basically the $400, $400 investment as opposed to $700 investment for a mini or 12 mini, right? So it's whether it, I guess if you want the, the better features, but the smaller form factor, the mini makes sense, right? But, uh, yeah, it's hard to say. It's, it's the whole medium popcorn argument, right? Like to think that, I think the iPad, the, the 12 mini loses in that it's only a few hundred dollars more to go to a proper 12, right? Uh, or 12, yeah, because it compares to the 12, not the 12 Pro, right? Yeah. No. Well, the Mini has 5G, right? And the SE does not. Right. But like I said, if you're if you're not in if you're not if you don't want to spend a lot of money on a phone and you want to get a, an iPhone, then the, the the SE makes sense, right? Right. Like, right. 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 No. So I, where I was going with that is that that's presumably the reason for having both models available at the same time, the SE and the and the 12 Mini, because in theory, well, whether this is reality or not, but in theory, there might be people in 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 the you know in in the five 5G coverage area who need the fast speed, but like the small form factor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So my guess would be that by this time next year, the SE will cease to exist and the 12 mini will take the position of the, the main small phone because there won't be any 4G version. That's my guess. So this next story is, is I've been working on a little bit of a side project. Um, Carol's wanted me to write an app for her for a couple of years now and I've been procrastinating. Um, but yeah, and I'm a, I'm a fan of Core Data. And so we talked about Core Data and Swift UI a few months ago. Um, and so I decided to dive in. I was actually more interested in CloudKit because I, I do have actually an app on the store that uh, where you can export and import information, but I, I never really got around to doing CloudKit on it. And so I was looking at whether I can, you know, put cloud, put CloudKit support into my Core Data app. And and it is surprisingly simple to switch from the old um, iCloud um, sharing or whatever it's called to CloudKit. CloudKit is like it's like one click in in the um, app setup when you go into the uh, capabilities. Um, you just turn on you turn on background processing for notifications, and uh, yeah, it's pretty straightforward. So with Core Data, you know, you've got the persistence layer there, um, and you basically write. It, it, you know, Core Data is, is re- really simple now with the, the new persistence container. Persistent container is it called, or just persistent store? Persistent container. Yeah, it's it's so yeah. much easier. I mean, it, it, that's been around for a few years now. Yeah, yeah, but, but it, it really really changed everything with with Core yeah, Data. Yeah, it's way way yeah. easier to use. Yep. And, and uh, with Swift UI, it's super simple. And then with uh, CloudKit, um, like I said, it's almost like w- one click to set it up and and uh, you know do a test on a couple of devices. The simulator is not quite great at at, core, at iCloud syncing, but the, I ran it on my iPad and my iPhone, and it was like pretty simple. Um, so I've got a couple of um, links here for people who want to go down the road, go down that route. Um, one I found yesterday from Blackbirds.com is a is a tutorial, very clear tutorial on building a core data app with Swift. UI. Um, it's interesting because he doesn't go, th- you know, you start off with the core data template, but he gets rid of the stuff and then brings it back in one step at a time to sort of so you get a better sense of, of how you're, uh, how they're using the environment variable to make your manage object context and um, and then as well how you, you refer to things within the app when you're when you're working with the data. And then the second one is from uh, raywonderlick.com and it's a few, it's like last year I think was when they, when they wrote this one and this one is about using core data with CloudKit. So both of them cover Swift UI, so and they both take a different approach to it. Um, but uh, they're very simple tutorials. You can do them in like an hour and, and uh, you'll have a good understanding how to do the stuff. So kind of cool. So I'm, you know, happily building my app and syncing in the cloud as it were, right? Jim, not only am I happy that you were getting that working, um, is this technically follow-up to an Ask MTJC? Didn't somebody ask us a while ago of like, hey, I've seen tutorials guy? With, with persistent um, store and I've seen CloudKit stuff, and I haven't seen something that combines the two. 
I think we didn't have an Joel, answer at Joel the time. Guy? Yeah, it might have been Joel Guy asked us that one. Yeah, so here you go. <laughs> <laughs> your, your continued patronage is eventually rewarded. Um, yes. He's actually he's actually one of our patrons too. So even even more oh, more uh, good oh, coverage, it was more literal good than I was uh, was intending. Yeah. Anyway, um, and I put this one next one up here, but Jaime originally posted it in our Slack channel, I think, right? Um, and that's the uh, and good news for Canada, yay Canada! Um, Apple Card and Apple Card Apple Cash trademarks have been approved in Canada, which means that you know that that's the first step in getting getting the name the trade name registered, um, and then uh, it shouldn't be too long before some form of Apple Card will come to, available to Canadians. Uh, so we'll be able to buy our Tim Hortons, uh, Tim Bits, and our Mac hardware with the Apple Card, and hopefully get the the same you know deals that uh, you, our U.S. patrons have been getting for what you've had the Apple Card for a couple of years now, right? Yeah, at least a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, and I Apple think Cash, I it guess, will be too. two years in for me like august and i think july is when people were able to get them if you join the early wait list or something so this other one is a real quick hit um for those of you out there who are fans of the show and fans of spotcast and maybe users or maybe you have an amazon prime account but uh amazon music a couple of months ago started adding podcasts to the mix and so officially they launched it last week so now you can enjoy more than just code i've got a link here to the amazon music page uh, you can listen to more than just code or you can listen to Spotcast on Amazon Music as well as Google Play and Spotify and of course you know the usual suspects uh, usual podcasters like Overcast Apple Podmat Podcasts um, Pocket I think what's the one that Greg uses Pocket Pocketcast, like I think. Pocketcast is that yeah, the one yeah, that yeah. was owned by NPR and that they were spinning back out? I have no idea. And and then uh, Castro and all those kind of guys as well. Cool. Real time follow up. I just checked my my uh, finance software, and the first balance for my Apple Card was on August twenty third, two thousand nineteen. Oh, so not hmm. even two years, year and a half. Yeah. yeah. Well, it normally takes a while for them to ink deals between different countries too, right? So yeah. and then they have to find someone to carry the financing and whatever. All right, because I don't think we have golden. Goldman Sachs in Canada. Right. Anywho, um, this is a new one. So, Mark, you have an Apple Watch? I do have an Apple Watch. And Jaime, you have an Apple Watch? I do. And I have an Apple Watch. You can now unlock, well, soon, I shouldn't say now, but soon you'll be able to unlock your iPhone while you're wearing a face mask, if you have an Apple Watch. Because in 14.5, they've added the ability to unlock your phone by authenticating through your watch. Ta-da! Yeah, this is another thing we're going to throw on the mountain of MTJC bump things, where this is pretty <laughs> Pretty much as we described, like, hey, if I can unlock my MacBook with my watch, why can't I unlock my phone with my watch? Given that you can, you can sort of tell it's probably me. You can tell that there's a mask. Why not? You know, uh, do right, me a solid. Right. And uh, you know, I'm sure those, those fine engineers at Apple listen. They're like, oh, that's a good idea, MTJC. Thank you. We'll, we'll take that one. So, so do you think under the hood, do you think that they're actually still using the facial recognition to, to recognize your eyes anyway, and then sec- using like a second factor? authentication with the watch yeah so i think so there's there's some uh, snarky people like oh finally why did it take so long it's like well think about this normally um the phone unlocks the watch right so now you have this bi-directional thing how do you accommodate that you have to be very careful and you have to be extra careful because you don't want to oh no we've made this too permissive and now everybody and their brother and sister can unlock your your um your face id protected device right like you you still want security and this presumably took some time to figure out all the different scenarios, what would be the use cases, aggressive, um, you know, uh, security testing, and probably training of the models of like, okay, how can we be sure that, you know, with varying kinds of masks, not everybody wears the same kind of mask, not like it's standardized in any, uh, you know, realistic ways. Some people are using bandanas and some people have, you know, plastic ones and some people have, you know, homemade ones and some are using the, you know, the more standardized ones that you might buy, but colors and textures and how does it fit on your face? Like there's a lot that goes into, you know, how do we train a model? So like, okay, there's a reasonable chance that it's this user. We have detected that there is a mask. Now check to see if the watch is within range and the watch is valid and etc. Like I'm, I'm sure it's non-trivial. Obviously I would have loved to have had this right at the beginning of the pandemic. I'm not going to complain given the security concerns that go into that I want it to be, you know, still secure, but yes, convenient in 14.5. And they probably had the solution, the technical solution six months ago and it took this long 
long to get it through the lawyers. Right. <laughs> yeah. To be honest. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's true. It's true. Yeah. Cause I mean, yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, watch that. Carol was complaining to me a couple of uh, weeks ago that she has to un- use her phone to unlock her watch you know, or just enter the, when she first puts it on. Cause she doesn't always grab her, her, her phone and her watch at the same time. And she was sort of saying, why do I have to enter my passcode into my watch? And I explained to her that the two work together. And that's a good thing. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to iOS 14.5 because this will help make things more convenient when I'm out and about. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, it's still kind of rare and I don't want to sort of dilly dally anywhere that I do happen to go. It's largely, you know, transactional and get out. But it's still sometimes I, I don't want to have to put in my passcode or do other things. Um, and for 14.5 for me, um, I will finally be able to use the Xbox Series X controller that does not have compatibility <laughs> right, until 14.5. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, yay, I'm kind of looking forward to getting Apple Arcade and, and playing some of the you know games that kind of need a controller. For me, I see this as as a nice thing, but but the truth is the the thing I use my phone for most these days when I'm out and about. Granted, I'm not out and about that often, so uh, it, the thing I use it most for is is Apple Pay. And if I can wear my watch, I can just use the watch for Apple Pay, so I don't actually right. need to yep. use the phone. Right. right. So it's it's a I see it as a nice to have, not a not a world changer at this point. But it's nice. But it is nice to have. Yeah. What did, you know? I can tell you, I I'm I'm walking my dog every day, and we have a we have a daily hangout we do in the morning before we start work uh, we have a, a, a coffee call and we all get together and just you know just chew chew the fat about different things and um i'm like i said i'm often often walking my dog and and since it's like minus 10 here mark i have gloves on mm. mitts on actually mm-hmm. and i have my hat my toque on and i have my my glasses which go black because i'm outside in the sun and then i have a face mask on so you know, i regularly if i have to do anything on my phone i have to you know take off a glove and yeah. you know yeah. risk frostbite to, you know, <laughs> unlock well, the phone or hit I, the mute button. I will point out before people are too impressed here in the mm. States that you are talking about minus 10 Celsius, not minus 10 Fahrenheit. Oh, <laughs> right. But well, minus 10 Fahrenheit is what? Pretty cold. Yeah. Minus 10 Celsius is pretty cold too. <laughs> it's below zero. Right? You below go Fahrenheit to Celsius? That's negative 23 Celsius if it's negative 10 Fahrenheit. Oh, really? Or was it the <clears> other <throat> way? I, miss, I might have misheard. I don't know. It's math. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to our... Uh, What's new in Swift there, Jaime? Well, wait a minute. Hold on. Let's. So zero degrees Celsius is 32 oh. degrees Fahrenheit, right? Yeah. So minus 10. Is minus 10 Celsius below zero Fahrenheit? I don't know. Let me let me get pocket calc out and, and ask <laughs> pocket calc. Hey, Siri, what is minus 10 Celsius in Fahrenheit? 14. 14 degrees Fahrenheit, which is cold, yeah. but not as cold as minus 10 Fahrenheit. Okay, fair enough. It's still pretty cold. I'm still, still, pretty I'm still cold. wearing, like, you yeah. know, no pants and proper sure, Columbia sure, jacket sure, sure. or... Yeah. And my Sinsulate Canada, you know, with the Canada logo on them, gloves and that kind of stuff. Yeah. From the Hudson's Bay Company. Alrighty. Now can we move on to what's Let's move on, please. <laughs> very, <laughs> very briefly, because I think some of this stuff is easier to see, um, you know, trying out the playground. Should people pull over first or what? You, you really should. <laughs> I would not advise trying to trying to check this in the show notes while you're driving. Uh, so uh, Hacking with Swift, which is done by uh, Mr. Paul Hudson at Two Straws on Twitter, has done a, you know, what's new. And there's some stuff that um, I thought was nice. Um, well, to varying degrees, some things are like, yeah, that's super nice. Like the multiple variadic parameters uh, is is pretty nice where sometimes you don't always know precisely how many players do I have, precisely how many integers. And I don't, I don't want to make four slots or two slots. I just, just, you know, however many there are, send them in. And it's not necessarily something you can easily just turn into an array as an example. People are wondering, and, you know. And presumably it removes the constraint that you can only have have, what is the number 10 views in Swift UI without using a group? Oh, I wonder about that. It, this doesn't talk about that yeah. implication, but I am curious if you're if you're right there. Because that was the reason for that. They had to, because they didn't have uh, multiple uh, variadics like this, uh, they had to have explicit signatures for all the different types of view closures uh, for for each number of views. So if you look at the implication, there's, there's one with one view, there's two views, three views, four views and they had to choose a number to stop at so they weren't writing these signatures all day long (laughs) (laughs) and they chose i think it was 10 i could be wrong on the number Mm, yeah but now that they have these they don't need that anymore that's good insight that probably is uh, a good driver for doing this Um, yeah there's other smaller quality of life things are like you know 
it's not hugely impactful, but it's like, yeah, this is, this is an obvious thing I like where like having the improved, sorry, improved implicit member syntax with the option here of like, hey, you could change the foreground color to like dot red. It's you know, mm-hmm. implicit what you're doing there. It's shorthand is how I think of it. But oh, did you want to change the opacity? Well, sorry, compiler is not smart enough to figure that out. So color dot red is what you're going to use. Like, oh, well, now I can do just dot red dot opacity. You know, nice. Cut out all the cruft. Mm. Um, big section of this blog post is talking about result builders, which are um, uh, formally went through the Swift evolution process. So they'll, they'll work as you expect. I'm going to spend a whole lot of time there. Um, having the uh, packages can now in Swift package manager can now declare executable targets, which is pretty nice. Uh, if you wanted to use like at main and not do the thing like, well, it doesn't want to work because it's hard coded to look for main.swift. And um, mm. a couple other things like uh, the property wrappers or uh, local variables. And the example it gives is like a property wrapper ensures that its value never goes below zero. So clamping is is something that seems like it's a whole oh, lot easier. Cute. Yeah, that's yeah. Nice. yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's useful of like, all right, you know, user tries to decrement. All right, well, I'm going to make it so it's not possible to go, you know, below a number and presumably above a number if you wanted to, to clamp the quality of life stuff. Mm-hmm. And how could iOS 7 apps save you 500 megs of storage? It's funny that you read it that way because I also <laughs> read this, literally read it that way. No joke. And I was like, why is this in my newsfeed? That is so old. I was like, oh, it's not iOS 7 apps. It is how seven of such iOS apps could save you 500 megabytes of storage. And I bring this up not as a, oh, like, gosh, just go shake our fists at these various apps, but more, oh, yeah, it might be an opportunity for folks to take a look at their own apps and say, hmm, I wonder if we're doing something like this. So uh, he's run some sort of analysis here. This is uh, Noah Martin. And some things um, uh, end up bloating up the, the size of your, your installed uh, application, like Dropbox, for example, could hypothetically reduce a lot of its duplicate localization files. I mean, how easy is that to just like let it get duplicated over and over in your your uh, your setups, right? It's like, oh, we we need localization in this new watch target. It's like, all right, whatever, man, just copy the file over and call it good, right? Like it solves your immediate need, but has implications depending on, you know, how much stuff you've got in there. There's um, font files for this Spark app. Uh, what did eBay do? eBay included unnecessary Swift symbols because like some, some framework somewhere was supposed to uh, use a method to strip uh, non-external strip the bulls. There's mm-hmm. like a whole bunch of interesting sort of things here. That I'm like, yeah, you know, you know, if if you're uh, a team of one, I I kind of doubt that you would have these serious issues. I think these things start to happen when you have you know tons of folks all trying to ship and, and get things done, uh, and it's it's pretty easy to to lose sight of like, hey, wait a minute, like what what's going here? How big is this thing getting? No, so there's no solution. It's just he's pointing out seven apps that are that are culprits of using extra space right well the solutions here are like don't include these um these extraneous font files but you're talking to dropbox you're not saying the end user Right. No, no, it's no, a, not it's a little bit of a clickbaity, uh, clickbaity uh, title. Yeah. yeah, he's basically yeah. saying if these seven companies cleaned up their apps, you as a user who has these seven apps on your phone would save f- 500 megabytes of storage. Hmm. That's that's what that's what the headline means. But really, the story is about how you as a developer can, can do this in your own app. Right, right. Okay, good. No. Like, okay, here's one way down at the bottom. Lyft. The Lyft app has hundreds of duplicate files, the largest of which is a single asset category catalog copied 73 times in separate bundles. I'm sure there's really good reasons why that is, right? And and I'm, I'm really looking for like, um, you know, A-B tests and etc. That's probably, it was probably easier to like not have to have like a common team deal with it. But it's also a little silly in, in, the, in the aggregate to have the same asset catalog 73 times in separate bundles. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Mm. All right. And then he said, this one, I, I was wanted to get a, the, the pulse of the, uh, of the panel here. So the title is the diminishing utility of MF mail composed view controller. It's a very right. short article that talks about like, Hey, prior to iOS 14, the one and true only email app on iOS was the mail app comes pre-installed to the device. Right. You can do yeah. other apps. Sure. But really you could never know what was going to be going on. So for developers, you'd, you'd say, Hey, if this mail composed view controller can send email or sorry, send mail, um, go ahead and compose it, set your 
parameters and delegates and move on with life. And that's cool. And that's great. And it will absolutely continue to work in iOS 14. But what this uh, developer, and I'll try to catch their name, um, is proposing is like, well, in the new world, uh, Stuart Breckenridge is the like name. What they're proposing is like, well, maybe to uh, to be better and more respectful of the user's choices in terms of the email apps, whatever they're using, don't use mail compose view controller. Instead, add the mail to scheme, to, uh, the schemes that you handle and use the UI application shared can open URL. And if you can, go ahead and, and open that URL and that'll trigger iOS to say, oh, which of you is the default mail app? Is it you, Gmail? Is it you, Outlook? Cool. Here you go. User wanted open mail. Um, and it has a, a feature request for iOS 15 where default mail app should have some equivalent of MF mail composed. You could, you would... Yeah, I was going to say, because like, don't we have to pass if you want to bail out? Because um, I do know you, I do use the mail use yeah. MF mail composed view controller in a few apps where we public we pre-populate some of the some of the mail right um so the user just has to hit mail and then or hit send and it, and it runs through the mail app but um i guess we have to figure out how to pass those very those those properties over to whatever the choice of um email client the person is using i guess right yeah and given what apple has done with other things if if i was an apple engineer designing this i say lopez we need you to come up with a way to do it developers are screaming it's like all right well you know, we have an intense I-N-T-E-N-T-S system for a whole bunch of other things like Siri Kit, for example. Wouldn't it make sense to have a intent that says the user intends to compose some mail and the correct default app gets access to that? It gets fired up. It's like, hey, here you go, Gmail, or here you go, Outlook. Here's the intent, which would have very similar things like you need to have a defined subject and recipients and maybe some way to pass information back so that, um, you know, you know, what do you do when you're done with your activity? Maybe you might want to send the user back to whatever app they came from. That's probably how I would implement it. So if we see it in iOS 15, MTJC bump, we're going to reclaiming it now. <laughs> it, it seems to me there might be a way to do it. All, well, there's close to a way to doing it already today. I, don't, I can't say 100% that it exists. If the, the well, the, the assumption I think has to be that the third party mail tool has to obviously be involved, installed on your phone, right? So if it is, why can't that third-party mail app just write some kind of an extension? And so it pops up. So there's a there's a mail extension, right? That pops up in your share sheet right next to the Apple Mail, mm-hmm. and there's the Gmail extension, and you just choose that one instead. Right, that's possible. So you would see it's it like bringing up a, a sharing sheet kind of thing versus yeah, yeah, having like this is the default app I use. I wanted to just bypass the sharing sheet selection. Like maybe it would show it the first time, but have like a checkbox or something like you as the default way to open these well i mean it's a it's a different use model for the user right now you know you, you'll your user will tap a button or something and it'll pop up the share sheet and you populate the share sheet uh or equivalently you can package up all the information and open an activity control view controller and have them maybe choose message or maybe choose whatever or or choose mail and then it gets populated in the mail if they choose that route both of those are possible right now so so in order to uh allow a third-party mail tool to do it, there'd have to be some kind of hook where where your third-party app would show up in the in the share sheet, just like or the the activity controller sheet, right? Uh, instead of or in addition to the Apple Mail one, but that seems like it's close to existing right now. But there there may not be a, an extension uh, an extension point for mail. I, I don't know. I haven't I've been a while since I looked at that stuff. Hmm. Yeah, I'm un, I'm unsure. Yeah, yeah, but something interesting that I thought very short here to think about of like, oh yeah, we just sort of take for granted that mail compose view controller exists, but yep. maybe it should yep. be replaced by something a little bit more modern, given that the operating system has evolved over the, the last decade. Yeah. Well, like I said, I, I do have a couple of apps that use it, and I'm just trying them right now, and it seems to seems to work okay, but then I'm still using the default um, the default mail composer, right? Oh, wait, one link's not working. Oh, no. People can't email me. I guess I have to do an update. <laughs> Alrighty. Um, I, I tried one app, and, it, and sure enough, the composer did open, but the second one seems to be broken. Anywho. Um, yeah, so I guess we'll move on to our picks portion of the show. Um, should I go first, Tommy? Sure. Yeah. So I was on the Swift UI bandwagon this weekend, and I just happened to notice this uh, as I was working away on my little Swift UI app. I sometimes had, in one example, I was using a, a floating button uh, above my view, my view, where basically I was using a Z, a Z, like a Z stack, I guess to call it, where you have like you can have overlapping elements. And uh, so the button was sort of floating around the bottom of my form, and when the keyboard opened up, it kind of obscured 
obscured the button. So there's a really interesting article here on a Swift, Swift UI keyboard avoidance, which is something we've all been wrestling with in our entire iOS careers. Um, and so in uh, some really interesting art uh, examples here, he's got like in his, his text here, he's got like a small little a view with a couple of boxes, one's red, one's yellow, and then he calls up the keyboard when you tap on a form element. And uh, in some cases, the uh, views shrink to make room for the keyboard, or sometimes they don't. And so you, he's got a couple of examples here on how you can change the size of your views um, or not to um, basically uh, allow the keyboard to have enough room and not not obscure or obscure your your view your view your view or your view elements. Um, there's a ignore safe air safe edges you can opt out of uh, if you don't want to have it um, uh, play a lot play nicely or not, or not right. So just a couple of quick legal examples here. Some with some code you can play around with to try and um, see how they behave in different cir- circumstances. Cool. You guys have watched the little videos and yeah, it, it is nice. Um, and it's not as if uh, there weren't solutions out there. And they, they point mm-hmm. out that you either you know took the snippet off of Stack Overflow or you <laughs> you pulled in a Cocoa Pod or something. But it's, it's kind of nice to just have the default behavior or just do what you would expect it to do. Right. You know. And and yes, I'm sure there's folks that might have very specific needs, but it it always felt for a very long time of you know this is a really common use case and having some default handling that's you know pretty sensible is mm-hmm. a um, you know it re- reduces the the sort of barrier to entry right it lowers the floor of look man i just i just want to get to the next part of the app that's actually fun not the keyboard avoidance part <laughs> that i'm going to spend the next eight hours fighting with yeah well and there was for one app i was working on we had a number of fields in the in the view and of course we had to animate based on which field you were on and then once you left that field you had to animate back to put your view back to view back the way it was and then of course and Apple started coming up with different size phones and yeah, just it's, it's been fun. And then of course you have iPad versus iPhone and what do you do in one case and not the other? And uh, The easiest way was always to use auto layout and just have the yeah. have the uh, the bottom view constrained to the bottom of the, of the safe area, of yeah. the safe area uh, mm-hmm. with a variable constraint and then just in that observer that when the, when the keyboard opens, just grab the height of the keyboard and set the, set that, that size constraint right. to yep. the size of the keyboard and boom automagical. Yeah, that's works. what I started doing in later later years, but I think yep. yeah, up until that point, it was up until auto layout got sensible, because auto layout went through its sort of short sure. pains as well, yeah. right? Yeah. So I was doing a lot of frame animations and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Siri Bob. Um, this next one, I'm, I was going to talk about SwiftUI Jam, but I just found out that they're closing the uh, the um, registration midnight tomorrow, which basically means that by the time the show comes out, it's too late. So if you didn't listen to last week's show and get, and get signed up for the SwiftUI Jam course, it's in Toronto, but it's virtual, so it doesn't matter where you come from. But uh, if you were lucky enough to, to find out about that, you can uh, you can join us in on the week of the weekend of the nineteenth. I think it's a, t- a couple of days event starts on Friday, ends on Sunday. Um, and uh, yet another iOS Dev Happy Hour is coming up on February twentieth, which is the same weekend. Um, we're meeting at four p.m. EST Eastern Standard Time. Um, and I can tell you, I went to the last the last event. Um, don't be fooled by the name Happy Hour. The majority of people were drinking water um, but uh, we the way it worked is we had um, uh, basically a large room with you know pages and pages of people on the zoom call I think we had 370 at one point um, and uh, on the main main stage if you want to call it that uh, they had a couple of people do some quick talks you know talking about their their careers iOS developers and that kind of stuff and some you know uh, human interest kind of angles and then we broke off into um, uh, breakout rooms and uh, where you met you know, you hung out with uh, four to five other developers and talked about, you know, COVID and how they're dealing with things and where they work and what part of the world they're from. I mean, I, I was hanging out with people in California and some people in Europe and, and that kind of stuff in some of the breakout rooms. And, and there were some names there. If you're, if you're looking to meet up with some names, they were, there were some people who were there that uh, if you follow on the Twitter, she might, um, you know, be interested to meet or say hello to and that kind of stuff. Um, so it's kind of interesting little uh, thing, but that's coming up on the 20th of February and you can get your ticket through Eventbrite and there'll be a link in the show notes and I'll be there and I'll see you then. Over to you, Jaime. Yeah, mine is uh, something that I found. I don't remember who was the original source. I'm sorry. Maybe I saw it on Twitter or something, but it's called um, GitHub 1S or possibly one second is the way it's intended to be read, given that the tagline in the readme or says GitHub. one second to read GitHub with, uh, with Visual 
Studio Code. It's kind of neat. So what I understand this to be doing under the covers is actually another thing about something I'll talk about later because first I should tell you why you should care. Well, if you were ever like, hmm, I wonder, 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 wonder what this code that I'm looking at on the interwebs on GitHub would uh, would look like if I had like a, a real IDE around it, right? Because sometimes, you know, even as nice as, as GitHub has made its whole um, UI and it does some, some URL, sorry, um, syntax highlighting, um, it's not quite the same as seeing, you know, this drill down view that doesn't exactly replicate mentally what these folders are going to look like and et cetera, et cetera. So this here is a nice little trick where anything where you would have had like, you know, their example is github.com slash Microsoft slash VS code. That's the repository for Visual Studio code. You just change that to GitHub 1s.com and then the rest of the path. And you get this nice web-based Visual Studio code uh, view of, of that. So for folks that are curious to see an action, I threw a link in the show notes here that is uh, the Vapor project. So similar. What would be github.com slash vapor slash vapor is GitHub, GitHub 1s.com slash vapor slash vapor. And if you fire that up, you're like, oh, here's Visual Studio code running in a web version. And uh, oh, I can click through and see future.swift and see everything sort of as the way nature intended the syntax highlighting to work. I can see the exact sort of uh, file system or directory layout for this project. Um, I don't know that something like Swift would run in here, but um, let's see why it why it couldn't, given that Visual Studio Code is uh, not only a pretty popular um, text editor and you know nascent IDE. What I think this is probably using under the covers is um, Microsoft has done a whole lot of work to make something I think called Code Spaces or something similar. They, they changed product names like a dozen times. So I apologize if I have the wrong name, but they're really trying to integrate VS Code into the um, the GitHub experience where if you're like, hmm, I see a bug here. It's like, well, rather than cloning the repo or changing to a branch, it's like, hey, what if I just was able to do all of that through the browser, through the editor? And, and rather than trying to edit with a uh, sort of meager text editor, it's like, what if you just use something as powerful as VS Code in the cloud, in your browser to do this. And that part's speculation because it's not explicitly listed in what's going on there, but I, I, I can read the tea leaves and say, hey, I, I think I know what's going on here. That's right. Microsoft bought GitHub, didn't they? They did. They did. And yeah. there there was like VS Code code spaces or maybe it was GitHub code spaces and a similar-ish product that was like VS Code in the cloud or something. And I think that's what this individual, uh, ConWNet is the username, or Net con, I guess, is maybe what the user is supposed to be read as uh, when I click on their profile. It's just neat. Like, if you ever... I, I haven't tried doing any development type work with this, but being able to see the layout like you would see it in a, an actual ID is really nice. It's a lot easier than just trying to click through these different folders that are broken down a little differently for um, the way that GitHub's traditional UI shows things. Okay, doke. Right, well, I guess that's it for another week. So, hey, hi, me. If people want to get in touch with you, where will they find you? I'm on Twitter is at Dev of the Hair. And Mark, if you want to get in touch with you. Mark R at Smapsoft.com. Right. And as usual, my name is Tim Mitra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine is where you'll find me. So until next time, we'll say bye-bye. Bye. This has been another episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fireside.fm. There you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the apps, code, and news that we mentioned on the show. If you like the podcast, tell your friends, leave a comment on the website, or write a review on iTunes. And please recommend us in your favorite podcatcher. All of these things help others find out about the show. We really appreciate your help with spreading the word. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so use the hashtag AskMTJC, and we may mention you on the show. Friends of the show can also join us on the podcast Slack channel. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at MTJC underscore podcast. Please consider supporting the show by pledging any amount on Patreon.com slash MTJC. Every dollar pledged helps a lot. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.